Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. Insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners. A podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your hosts for today's episode are Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners, and Gordon Ross, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Dynasty podcast, Powering Independence. My name is Gordon Ross. I'm joined by my co-host, Ed Friedman. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Gordon. The topic of today's podcast is focusing on the next generation of advisors. And I actually think this is one of the most important topics facing the wealth management industry today. Um, There's been plenty of debate and headlines about um, how little or how much uh, this industry is attracting younger talent into its folds. And so I think this is going to be one of the real key issues that wealth management firms have to address um, in the coming 10 years. We're very happy and privileged to be joined by two uh, extremely uh, knowledgeable guests in this uh, in this area. We're first of all joined by David Root, the CEO of DB Root and Company, uh, uh, an RIA based out of Pittsburgh. Uh, Good morning, David. Uh, Good morning, Gordon. And Ed, and Anand. Good morning. And we're also joined by Anand uh, Saker, Vice President of Practice Management Consulting at Fidelity. Good morning, Anand. Uh, good morning, Gordon, and good morning, David. So, thank you very much for giving up your time to be part of this podcast today. Why don't we start um, by just giving the listeners just a quick intro as to yourself and, and, and the work you do at your various companies. David, do you want to go first, please? Sure, I'd be happy to, uh, Gordon. Uh, we are, we're on the wealth management side. Uh, DBR and Company was started in 1994 by myself, a uh, very uh, small uh, small beginning. Uh, three of us uh, started uh, wealth management practice. Uh, we had not uh, diversified into 401k advisory, which we're very much in, into now. Uh, presently, we are a multi-office uh, wealth management firm. And as I mentioned, we uh, also have a fiduciary advisory uh, uh, specialization in 401k uh, management that uh, has more of a national scope in, in terms of our clients. Uh, overall, we manage uh, a little over five and a half billion uh, billion dollars assets under advisement uh, at this point in time between our wealth management practice and our 401k practice. And uh, I, I would say, I guess, just uh, as a as a means of introduction. Uh, when we started the company, uh, my goal was to uh, establish ourselves as a mentoring company. So, um, so the next generation and uh, making sure that we have, you know, good young talent uh, in the organization has been a priority of ours uh, really since day one. Excellent, excellent. Thank you so much for being part of this discussion today. Anand, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing at Fidelity? Yes, absolutely, and, and, and it's a pleasure to be on this on this podcast. So again, my name is Anand Saker, um, and what I get the great joy of doing is really helping firms um, think about taking a strategic pause to think about their business as a business. Um, and it's great to hear David talk about how intentional he's been about having creating a culture and an environment that's focused around this mentorship model, and, and that is a lot of what our team does. Um, so we're a group of consultants here at Fidelity that really um, focus on helping registered investment advisory firms, independent broker-dealers, and other institutions 
institutions really would take in that strategic posture, think about their business in a very thoughtful way. And the way we do that is we focus on five areas, everything ranging from strategy, talent, client experience, risk and regulatory, and then technology and operations. And so taking that strategic pause, being intentional about your business is what we do to help support our clients that use our fidelity clearing and custody solution services. Great, great. Thank, and thank you so much for being here. So I, I'd like to kind of organize this discussion into a couple of different categories. You know, I think, I, I think first of all, let's talk a little bit about the current state of the industry. You know, if it, do we have a problem? And, and if so, how big is it? Then we can talk about why. And then let's talk maybe about solutions and maybe about, you know, how to manage, you know, the younger generations and, and, and what perhaps firms need to be doing differently than compared to what they're doing today. So let's start by just kind of looking at the current state of the industry. So, Anand, I think it'd be good for you to kind of kick things off here. I mean, Fidelity do a wealth of research in the industry. What's your, what, what's Fidelity's research telling you right now in terms of, you know, do we have a problem? And, and if so, how big is it? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, a few, a few years ago, we started looking at um, really a very wide lens around sort of talent from an industry perspective. And as part of that approach, um, what we decided to do is go out and, and do some qualitative as well as some quantitative research. And we started a journey um, that started out with really understanding um, a problem that we were seeing on a quantitative basis, which is uh, perhaps um, indications of less entrants coming into the industry and the potential retiring of a generation of advisors coming up upon baby boomers retiring. And the average age of advisors wasn't getting any younger. So we saw this sort of quantitative aspect of our industry of this, this number that we kept quoting of for every eight advisors that are predicted to retire, there's only perhaps three that are there to replace them. But one of the things that we wanted to understand is, is why is that happening? And so we started conversations with um, really starting to really cast a, a net wide. First, with college counselors um, and high school counselors, what are people thinking about when they're talking with these students uh, at both high school and college about their career? What are the things that are entering into their, into their mind? And one of the things we understood and appreciated through that journey as well as a day we put on bringing together deans from almost uh, two dozen of the CFP schools across the country, is that students more than ever before want a lot of the things that are actually very close and kin with, with what an advisor does. They want a flexible work-life balance kind of environment. They want it to be able to help others. They want something that provides fulfillment. All things that when we ask the advisors about what they love about what they do, they say the same things. And so there's this sort of he said, she said that marries up nicely. But then the other thing we discovered is, is that those individuals, those college counselors and high school counselors, share some really interesting insights with us around the perception of the students. And, and as we talked about, um, talked with the younger, um, these young folks that are being counseled, what we discovered was is that there's a perception about it being salesy, um, the fact that there's an expectation that you have to, um, to end up spending all your time calling your friends and family to become clients. And the reality of it is is that more often than not, um, if, we, if we talk to folks that are hiring these days, that's not the role that they're hiring for initially out of the gate. So there's some um, diff- different misperceptions um, that really caused, uh, you know, structurally a big issue with regards to our perception. And I think 2008 was a big contributor. The, the last thing I'll mention around this is that the other thing we've also um, recognized is that there's been a shift from our industry, financial services broadly, I'd say industry, not just perhaps the profession of being an advisor, 
but to technology and other industries. And so we've seen a shift as you look at college graduates. There's perhaps other industries that may be more attractive that they're gravitating to. And we're seeing that across colleges across the country, where as you measure the percentage of graduates going into financial services, it's less at schools like Harvard Business School, for instance, than it was perhaps 10, 15 years ago. And so there is some, there's some structural things that I think underline some of the challenges as well as perception things. Yeah, and what is your data telling you about maybe how diverse that, so the people who are entering the industry, what, how diverse is that group? You know, what, what type of backgrounds are those people coming from? Yeah, it, you know what's interesting about it is is that we're seeing um, a little bit of an uptick um, as far as more females that are interested, and I think part of it is also um, an awareness push from a lot of us in the industry to raise an awareness. We're starting to see the slight uptick of more women and um, potential women considering um, the advisor. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is that there's a more concerted effort to do it. We're still a ways away from changing it. But one of the things that we do find that's really interesting is, is that if you look across all um, roles across the REA space, um, our benchmark which study would show that about 40% of uh, em- employees, full-time employees at REAs are roughly female. What's interesting about that stat is that the challenge is that most of them are in support staff and administrative staff roles versus advisor roles. And so we have this, um, this interesting um, dynamic that's happening is we may be hiring um, females into firms, maybe at the entry-level type roles, administrative support staff, but we haven't figured out the career journey around how to promote them, how to develop them to become um, these advisors, and, and it hits on something that you know David hit it on, which is this mentorship and other things that are really important for firms to be considering. The last thing I'll mention is that we believe that um, as as you think about um, the next generation of talent, that in addition to perhaps there being a shortage, there's actually a bigger shortage around the type of skills necessary. Um, we've been talking a lot about you know uh, uh, as a firm about. The digital quotient, the ability to be able to leverage technology in an effective way, the intelligence quotient, which is you know perhaps things like doing research around the investment landscape as well as planning, and then the emotional intelligence or EQ. And we are finding that diversity can be an enabler to actually increase the level of emotional intelligence within firms um, holistically. And, and a diverse population of candidates, we believe, is also a, a you know, contributor to a higher level of emotional intelligence at firms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that question of like EQ and, uh, and emotional intelligence I want to come back to because I think it is important and, and perhaps kind of solving this issue. David, I, I'd just really be interested to hear your kind of personal experience here. You know, what, what was the kind of the inflow a talent like when you first joined the in- industry? How does it compare now? Like, what are you seeing in in your company? Sure. I uh, well, I think a number of things. Uh, <laughs> I guess I've I've been in the industry for 35 years now, and it's gone by so quickly. Uh, uh, but I I think that. When I started, it was uh, a, a, a much different feel. Obviously, uh, I, I think for starters, it, it uh, the, the entry point was more from a sales perspective. Um, it, it, it was finding a a selling opportunity, uh, you know, with a firm uh, that's willing to give uh, a, a young person 
uh, an opportunity that you know really has no experience coming out of college. Uh, you know that was that was my story, uh, and without uh, you know without getting really in the weeds in terms of my experience, um, you know I, uh, I I entered this industry. Uh, through a uh, a sales opportunity with an insurance company, the Guardian Life Insurance Company here in Pittsburgh, and uh, literally was just given a drawer full of policyholders to contact. They were orphan policyholders, and my job was to ask them about uh, you know their uh, uh, you know their beneficiaries and their dividend options and those kinds of things. But what I chose to do was actually go out and meet them. There was over three thousand. Uh, of these people in and around Pittsburgh, where we're based, and, and that's how I got my start. You know, I uh, I, I wasn't from Pittsburgh, uh, and 35 years ago there wasn't GPS. You know, so I had a map and, and a car, and that was <laughs> that was it. And uh, and so I guess my point is is that it, it, you know to enter this field, you it was you know mostly through a a sales opportunity, an opportunity to get involved and get involved in sales and, and essentially either sell a product or a service. That's how I entered. I think 35 years later, it is, it's so different. It's, uh, you know, 180 degrees different in the sense that we're now a, an industry that uh, has, uh, has professionalized on end mentioned the CFP. It's it's you know the CFP is the designation of choice for wealth management. There's others as well, the CFA uh, and others along the retirement side. But um, we're now a consultative industry, and, and so uh, that that selling uh, that selling entree point uh, I don't think is is uh, as um, as plentiful. Uh, I don't think it's as popular, and certainly with this new generation, it's not necessarily what the millennials want to do. Uh, mm. They want to have an, an entry point, you know, that's more experiential, that allows them to to help, you know, to help people, uh, to make a difference. I think above all else, they want to make a difference, uh, you know, uh, with other people and, and you know, in, in their own world. And so that's the opportunity that has to be provided, and it's very different than the one I started with. So let's drill down a little bit into that, because I think this is, you know, there's part of me that is contrarian about this and and the fact that, you know, if we think about things that are being said about millennials today, about, you know, um, wanting, you know, immediate success and uh, and entitlement and stuff like that, I'm I'm willing to bet that 40 years ago, you know, the older generations were, were saying that about, you know, uh, my parents' generation, for example, you know, so it's, it's something that happens every, uh, with every, you know, younger generation. But, I, so I guess, I, I, I guess my question is, is this just a fact? Is this something that, you know, there's there's peaks and troughs of recruitments into industry. Is this a fad, or is there something about our industry that needs to change in order to attract young talent? Well, I I believe it's structural. Um, you know, first of all, uh, our industry uh, tends to have an age bias, uh, which is an inhibitor. You know, in the sense mm. that uh, you know our our clients, our wealth management clients. Are mostly older, you know. It's it's the it's 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 it. You know, our clients that uh, are closer to retirement, you know, mostly have the money. They have the resources to uh, both invest and, and to plan, plan for. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that older person, uh, I, I think, you know, generally, uh, you know, would have a, you know, would have difficulty, uh, you know, placing their trust in somebody that might be uh, their, you know, son or daughter's age. Mm. Um, and, and so the, the age bias is tough to get over. And that's why I think uh, taking a mentoring approach is so important. You know, the, the coaching and mentoring that goes on with a young person uh, is is critically important. And, and, you know, and having a team to support them so that they're not just, uh, you know, they're not just out on their own, you know, trying to, uh, you know, trying to forge that client relationship or further that client relationship, but rather they've got a team of, of that, 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 that may, uh, uh, you know, where there may be an older advisor that they're teaming with that, you know, that can provide that entree to the older client. So it's, it's, it's the age bias that's tough to get over. I, I think that's part of the the, the structural challenge of the industry, but I also think the industry really just ha- I don't think we've done a great job at promoting the the rewards, the fulfillment that can be, you know, the career fulfillment that can be had in our industry, and I think I think we can do a better job of it. Mm. Yeah, I would let me just add on. I agree completely with David around the um, the career fulfillment part, and I think structurally, I think one thing that has been challenging. Um, for some, it's just even just the way the compensation happens today. If we think about um, perhaps even the last 10 years, you know, historically, many that might be recruited perhaps on campus to go work as a financial advisor, there's an expectation for most of those roles that you have to, in essence, sink or swim for the first year. And if you survive, um, then you will be, a, you know, perhaps on the track to become a successful advisor. Mm. And and the reality of it is, is structurally that um, from a perception perspective, and there's um, too many negative um, sort of perceptions around that business um, practice and that approach. Um, you know, and the success rate with that approach, um, as I think we all know on this call, um, and perhaps many of the listeners acknowledge, is is, is flawed. Um, and there's a need though still for people to start out with in a teaming environment to serve clients um, and to serve existing clients that these firms have um, because of capacity, because of segmentation opportunities. Um, And so there's a wonderful opportunity to think differently about um, the structural perception around how people first come in from a compensation perspective, Mm. um, how they're trained, how they're developed. Um, So I think there are some structural things. And then there's, um, so our industry has has supported sort of one bias, but then on top of that, it then reinforces a perception issue around the fact that you have to come in as, quote-unquote, a business development rainmaker from day one. And I think that that is unfortunately not focused then on the needs and the wants and the desires and the aspirations of um, this generation and any generation for wanting to help people. Yeah, I think, Anand, that's a really important uh, point. And, and David, to your comments as well, I'm not in the industry quite as long as you. I think you have me by one year. But if we look at <laughs> Uh, our industry in general, the wealth management industry in the past, a lot of the new uh, advisors that were being trained were being done so by the wirehouses, by the big banks, and they had rather significant training programs and rather large training goals. I go back to my days when I was a branch manager at Morgan Stanley and had to hit a quota in hiring new trainees, but notoriously so, the success rates for those uh, trainees was very low. 
right? Uh, if 25% of a year's worth of trainees made it in the industry, that was that was a really big number. But the the banks, the big money centers, the wirehouses could afford to have 75% fail and have 25% uh, succeed because they had big uh, deep pockets, uh, if you will. Our industry, the independent wealth management industry, however, doesn't have that luxury. Somebody like Dave Root at DBR doesn't have the luxury to hire 10 people in a given year with the idea that seven or eight of them aren't going to make it. It's just not uh, economically feasible. So I guess with that being said, on and the question I might pose to you is what's Fidelity's thought or position in helping some of the top RAs out there in the industry not only identify but help in the training and the mentoring and the development so that they do kind of um, uh, train that next generation but do it in a much more efficient and cost-effective way? Yeah, absolutely. So we are actually we, – we have a very strategic focus around, around this as a priority for the last couple of years, and we've been doing a lot of education first off on, on changing that persona very much at a, at a uh, grassroots effort with regards to how do you think differently about first off even your talent pools. Um, so let me give you a couple of just, just tangible examples. So one is, I think historically, you know, there's probably been um, an episodic focus around hiring college kids. Um, I think for REAs it becomes more challenging because they don't have a presence. So part of what we've been doing is we've been doing um, some different creative events to create sort of opportunities for networking between students and REAs. So that's been the first thing. The second thing I'll say is, is, is sort of how do you go on campus and create those um, partnerships with faculty members, the career counselors, so on and so forth. And, and how do you think differently, perhaps, even about the types of folks you're looking for? Um, and and I, mean, I want to hit a little bit about that, because I think historically, you know, one channel may have been, let's say, a CFP school, which is great. It's, it's fantastic. I think all of the CFP schools are doing great work to raise the awareness among um, high school kids, even around the fact that there's a profession. The thing is, is that that's not going to meet the demand of our industry from a diversity perspective, nor just broader number of numbers of advisors we need. So we have to increase the um, the awareness and a broader population. And so one thing that we've been encouraging firms to do is think differently about maybe focusing on the EQ skills and knowing and sort of assuming maybe, and this may be a poor assumption, but many students graduating these days probably can pick up the DQ skills and the digital part. And then the question is, can you train them on the IQ? And part of our, our, um, I think role as fidelity as well as the industry is what can we what can we collectively think about with all the different organizations that are out there whether it's you know the CFP College for Financial Planning, um, the CFP Board, the uh, the CFA Institute, IMCA, all these great organizations that provide great um, paths to designations and also the IQ skills that are necessary for our industry. And now that um, you know CIFMA. I'm sorry, the uh, FINRA, rather, came out with this new test, the SIE, which is a great path to sort of get people's um, appetites wet around what this industry is all about. I think there's a, a further channel and opportunity to raise awareness earlier in college. The last thing I'll mention is that if we can get folks thinking differently about the types of people on an emotional intelligence perspective, it then also opens up into new avenues beyond college to returners and switchers. 
And what I mean by return is, is that people perhaps that took a you know departure. A great example is my wife. My wife um, was an environmental engineer for the EPA for several years. Um, she stay, decided to stay home, quote unquote, retire a few years ago to stay home with the kids. Um, our kids are now you know at an age where perhaps she has a little bit more time. She's starting to work part time. And there's some firms across the country, and, and specifically one here in Boston, that has now hired um, women like my wife part time to serve as a servicing advisor, relationship manager. Um, and they've done this three times, and they've gradually ramped these individuals up to full-time. The interesting thing about that model is you, you don't necessarily have to find people that have necessarily specifically investment experience, but you might have people that have really good EQ, and then you train them on IQ. And then the last thing I'll mention is the switchers, which could be hypothetically nurses. Nurses are one of my favorite ones. Teachers are another. Um, they have really good, um, you know, perhaps ability to teach. They want to help others. Um, and our industry, I think, would be really well served with these people that have a passion for helping others. Um, and they both, and both of those, have an ability to teach. And I think that's a fundamental um, opportunity for advisors on a day-to-day basis. And they clearly oftentimes uh, make things that are complex simple uh, and, as you think about their jobs on a daily basis. So they can get the IQ part, and they, can get, and they clearly have, I think, the EQ. So, um, but, yeah, so there's a lot that I'm passionate about when it comes to you know, thinking differently about how we can both you know, think differently about the talent pools we're going after, but then also how can we then develop on the backside. Yeah, and this kind of brings on kind of the next category I want to talk about, which is essentially, like, if you think about solutions for this issue, I guess kind of step one is kind of widening the funnel. How do we get more people kind of being attracted to this industry and at least approaching this industry? David, from your from your side of DB Root, like, how do you guys think about attracting talent? Like, what are you guys doing there? Well, uh, Gordon, I think uh, for starters, I think you have it has to be ingrained in your culture. You know, I, um, yeah, I've heard the, the saying, or you've, you've heard the saying that culture eats profits for lunch. Um, and I, I know your, uh, uh, your CEO, Cheryl Penny, mentions that frequently, and I, I, I agree with it. I think that, that um, uh, hiring younger people, next-generation talent, uh, has to be part of your culture. Um, so, uh, so I think in terms of widening the funnel, it, it has to be uh, it has to be a habit. It can't just be, uh, you know, one of those things I'll get around to doing. Um, it has to be part of your culture, and and uh, I think Anand made an important point um, uh, in his last you know in his last statement, and that is that I think our industry, the wealth management industry, has to retool our thinking a bit uh, with, with respect to, uh, you know, how can we bring in next-generation talent? How can we attract them? And, and I think structurally, we have to look at it almost uh, like the, 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 uh, uh, the healthcare field looks at it, or, or medicine. Uh, we, we think of ourselves and like to uh, present ourselves as a teaching hospital um, so that when a when a young person comes to us either as an intern, you know, by way of an internship uh, or as a new hire, we want to present the opportunity as as if it were like a residency, and, and you're you know you're you're training to become a a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, and it's a multiple multiple year process. It's not uh, it's not just throwing uh, throwing them in the pool and saying you know after after eighteen months. 
uh, you've got to reach a certain quota or else uh, or else you're not going to make it um, but rather it's it's more of a it's more of a training process it's more of a mentoring process it's it's learning studying immersing yourself in a profession that is is going to uh, truly make a difference with uh, with your client over the long term and, and bringing the professionalism, the credentials, the experience, and the team behind them uh, that uh, that it's going to that that's going to make it work and make it successful over the long term. So I think it's a restructuring at the wealth management level. It's got to become culture for the firm and. and and the one more, the last thing I'll say about about that is that at most wealth management firms are smaller and are challenged by thinking about hiring that that next generation and spending four or five years, let's say, training them without really any payback, you know, or yeah. without you know even even breaking even for you know for that matter. The way you have to look at it is if you're if you're going about the selection process the right way you are setting yourself up potentially for a 25, 30, possibly a 40-year annuity with that person. Mm. And that's the way you have to look at it. So you're, you have to be willing to invest on the front end to, to make it work and make it successful for that young person over the long term. I think, I, I think this is a really important point, and I kind of want to – let's maybe take a moment to like look at it from the other side of the of – the, um, Periscope, if you like, and the fact that you know you've to essentially summarize what you said, David. You know, this can be this can be an exceptionally good career. You know, as as Anand uh, uh, talked about, you know, the, this this industry does give off a number of the real benefits that many people are looking for these days. Um, however, it is a ten year, you know, multi year investment. You have to essentially be somebody who's happy to kind of go through a, 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 an, an apprenticeship, and and it's a very hard working apprenticeship. It's not. It's definitely. Yeah not easy and it, and it doesn't fit everyone in today's culture whereby and I, I'm actually you know I'm not criticising the younger people of today I think I think they've actually been put in a very difficult position whereby they have this fear of missing out in the fact of you know that on the one hand they're looking at the wealth management industry a multi-year hard working apprenticeship and then they open up Instagram and the, and there's somebody on a beach somewhere you know there's you know there's there's always being bombarded with visions of, of other people having it way better than them you know, what can we maybe do as an industry to either like either try and combat that or, or is it a case of how, how do we identify people who may be more susceptible to that kind of apprenticeship approach? You know, what can we be doing as an industry here? Well, I, I think it's a couple things. Uh, number one, as a small wealth management firm, and we're a little bit larger now, um, 23 uh, people, team of 23. Uh, but when we started out, uh, we were three. And uh, but as I mentioned, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, we we wanted wanted to be a mentoring firm from you know from the very start. And as a result, we were uh, you know very willing and very interested in in providing internships to young people. I, I think you can't be afraid to do that. You can't be afraid to provide a, a paid-for internship. You know, just a, you know, just a, a minimum wage, for example. Um, and, and you know that that can be a, an entree for a young person. Uh, I will say that I, 
you know, I, I've had a challenge as a, uh, as a business owner and as, a, as an employer, and that is hiring young people right out of college. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned the, the, the grass is greener concept. You know, I think there is a, there, there's, there's definitely something to that. You know, uh, feels like technology uh, or, uh, uh, you know, investment banking, entertainment, athletics, you know, those are, uh, you know, those are fields that can provide, um, you know, a great deal of early on success, you know, for someone who's talented and who's willing to work hard and, and so forth. I get back to the age bias. The age bias is, uh, you know, is a challenge for a young person from, from the start. So this really is a long distance, uh, a long distance run versus a sprint, you know, in our industry. So the internship can provide the uh, the uh, the starting point. Uh, I, I will say that I, you know I have a hard time hiring somebody right out of college. I I, I do have a couple of uh, millennials that are right out of college, and and they're more the exception to the rule. Where I've found success is you know is that that person in their later twenties, early thirties, that may be on their second or third job, and and really ready to settle into a career, and they've got a better idea of what they want from their career. That's the person that we've we've had success with. Um, I, I haven't figured out the college. I haven't figured out the college grad quite yet, um, and that's just, that may be just a kind of an underlying weakness uh, of our mentoring program. Okay, so let let's build out on that a little bit. You know, and if we think about it, let, let's say for the sake of argument, you know, we managed to expand the funnel. How do we select from that funnel? You know, David talks about a DB route. You know, they've got a certain criteria they're looking at. You know, industry wide, what should an RIA firm be doing to ensure they're they're selecting the right people? Yeah, so you know, there's a few things that I think about. Um, so the first thing that um, somebody you know is interviewing that has. Um, hired a significant amount of people in the last um, two years, you know, they, they've been looking for what, you know, they, look, they term as cultural intolerables. They've defined their cultural intolerables. What are the things that we will not tolerate at our firm? Um, and David hit it on this, that culture, um, you know, is so critical to the success long-term of the profits of the firm. And, and so they've defined these intolerables. Um, so as an example, you know, for, for some firms that might be, gosh, they need to be team player. Um, another one might be the fact that they have to believe in this mentorship model that David has uh, been talking about passionately. Whatever those things are that a firm says, you know what, we will not tolerate if somebody is acting in this way. And, and so then it becomes um, really clear to then create um, a way as you interview and as you um, assess talent on the front um, part, you spend a ton of time actually interviewing these people and assessing them. And it could be include also tests, um, and there's potential risk with those tests, but I think that there's, there's, some, um, there's some good ones out there in the industry and brought more broadly from a talent perspective that you can use. Um, but one of the things that is most important about that entire process is to eliminate your biases. And what is really um, very, very common in our industry is that we have preconceived notions, whatever they are, um, and that could be, you know, male-female biases. That could be, um, you know, also ageism um, biases. There could be a lot. And by first getting clear about what is important to your firm culturally, but then also technically, um, as well as EQ-wise, so on and so forth, you can come up with a script of questions and that are behavioral-minded that you ask each one of these individuals. And we find that firms that actually come up with those questions, behavioral questions, and consistently ask them across multiple times and multiple people are asking these questions, 
questions, you will get a good story of who this person is and whether or not they're going to be a fit long term. It almost the you know the thing I um, often like to say is that you know many firms um, should be hiring slowly and firing quickly, and not enough firms are doing that. Because what ends up happening is you make a bad hire and then you keep them on for way too long. So take the time up front, identify those things that are really important for your firm, put in the, um, a business practice in place that makes sure that it's aligned to then the questions you ask and make sure they're behavioral-minded questions. And then on the, on the flip side, if, if for some reason you make a poor hire, um, make sure that you're making, uh, cutting um, quickly. The last thing I'll mention is that um, you know, to David's point around, um, you know, the challenge around uh, around millennials. You know, I think that it's 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 somewhat of a a new old challenge. And I think there's there's always been a little bit of mobility. You know, I'm a Gen Xer, and 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 I think about you know, uh, I've had personally six different careers, and they say that the average millennial not six. Um, jobs. You know, I've had many jobs, but six actual different careers, meaning different actual jobs. I started as a chemical engineer. I'm not doing chemical engineering anymore. And the Gen Y, millennials, will likely have about six different careers. So the question is, is that how often will they look for something different because they're, they're not necessarily, bring, uh, you know, perhaps fulfillment, growth, um, whatever those things are, that's going to be the trigger point. And it could be at your same firm. They could be changing within the same firm if there's opportunities that present themselves at their firm to personally grow. So I think that's the big question for us to think about is what are those characteristics you can first off assess, number one, and then number two, what are those opportunities you're going to present to them as part of that career discovery process so that you're, you're helping them understand the long-term growth of your firm, that it is a marathon, but there is going to be growth. You're going to get challenged. You're going to be able to see a lot of different things because that's what they're looking for. Yeah, so let's take that to the next step then. Let's maybe talk about, you know, all right, let's say you manage to get some good talent on board. What does that kind of training and management process look like? David, you know, you've talked about this kind of apprenticeship culture within your organization. What does that look like? What does a training program look like at DB Root? You know, uh, before I, I get there, I'll ask. I'll, I'll offer another, uh, you know, uh, example of, of success quotient in terms of hiring, uh, and, and that is that I, I think that, you know, not only do we want to uh, attract and, and hire uh, people, young people that uh, that are, you know, professional in their appearance, professional in their, you know, sort of personal presentation, but we've we've found that. Those that are successful typically uh, have multiple in- interests. They're not just smart. They're not. They they haven't just done. They haven't just been successful in school on the academic side, but rather they've had other interests like athletics or arts. Uh, for example, internally we have four different uh, four different uh, former uh, athletes: uh, basketball players, hockey players. Uh, we also have a concert violist. Uh, uh, that we recently hired, and she is, uh, you know, she's she's part of two different symphonies in and around Pittsburgh. Um, it's those multiple interests that I think make, uh, you know, make for a uh, success, ultimately a success, a successful hire for us. Um, as far as as far as training, what does the training look like? I, you know, I would say first of all. I want to set the expectation that it is a multiple-year process. It is a three- to five-year process, whether you're being hired on the administrative side or on the uh, prospective advisor side. Uh, on the prospective advisor side, it's every bit of a four- to five-year process. That's the expectation I want to 
to give uh, to this young person so that they're not so anxious to be, uh, you know, to, to get licensed, to get that credential, that CFP, and say, okay, okay, I'm ready, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm ready to meet that business owner, you know, that, that person who's just sold his business, and, you know, I'm ready to take on the challenge of investing multi-millions and, and, and you know, planning a, you know, successful retirement for, for this person, you know, after a year, 18 months or two years. No, it's a, it's a, it has to be a three to five plus year process and uh and we're starting you know you know starting at the very beginning with the basics the the admit you know just the administrative tasks of setting up an account transferring accounts what the paperwork looks like you know how do we work with the custodian that's that's the starting place and and from there you know the process will go as as quickly or slow or as slowly as the you know, as the candidate uh, dictates, and, and typically, if we've hired well, it'll it'll go pretty quickly. So, David, I want to go back to um, a comment that Anand had made, which I think is is really important. We know that you've had a lot of success in your mentoring program and developing talent inside of uh, of DBR, but I like what Anand said, which is hire slowly, but terminate or fire quickly when it's not a right fit. What type of discipline do you employ at DBR when you don't have that right candidate? Or what do you, what do, you do to determine that this person may not be the long-term uh, employee that you're looking for or the advisor that you're looking for? Yeah, it's a great question. When we uh, make the offer, offer to hire that person, it's always uh, based on a, uh, a six-month probationary period. So... Uh, right from the start, we, we lay the groundwork or the expectation that there's a six-month probationary period, in which case, you know, we're both uh, going to determine whether this is a good fit for each other. And um, uh, so that that's for starters. And I, I think Anand's, uh, uh, you know, approach of, uh, uh, of, you know, hire slowly, fire quickly. Uh, interesting for us, we've uh, we've made every effort to build the kind of culture where it's almost self-selecting, where we'll hire someone, and it is a slow process. Uh, typically, that person's interviewed by four or five different people and or groups, and uh, we do a lot of, you know, uh, you, you know, just just a uh, you know a lot of just groupthink on the process sharing notes, comparing notes, and so the hiring process is slow. It can be self-selecting if during that probationary period uh, the team, you, you know, the team that that person is working with or interacting with, you know, is, is basically unsure of their, uh, you know, their, their future, their, their, you know, their, their qualities, their credentials going forward, and uh, we've had several that have just decided to leave, you know, after the probationary period. And in many cases, it's before. It's beforehand. And if that doesn't happen, it becomes clear that that person is not, you know, is not a good fit for the long term. You know, we'll take the step to, um, you know, to terminate or, you know, just to let go and, and just and, and, and try to counsel them that they're, you know, uh, while this career might be right for them, maybe we're just not the right fit uh, from a cultural standpoint. 
And and so how do you let's flip that to the opposite where and you touched on this earlier, you know, how do you if you're working with somebody and they're in like your training or apprenticeship program, how do you decide when it's time for them to stand on their own two feet? What do you guys look for? You know, typically that that also kind of takes care of itself, Gordon. Um, it, it's I, you know I'll. Uh, use the analogy of, of, of learning how to fly a plane. Uh, you know, when, when, when you're, and I'm not a pilot, so I, I can't do, I can't say this from experience, but I, I think, you know, generally speaking, we know that, you know, when you're learning to fly a plane, you're doing it with an instructor and you're doing it <clears throat> for as long as it takes before that instructor, you know, believes you're, you know, you're ready to solo on your own. I, I think the same analogy applies here. Typically in terms of timing or time frame, you know, we're looking at uh, probably, you know, every bit of a three-year to four-year process before that person can, you know, can fully fly on their own as a, a full-fledged advisor, let's say. Uh, and in one, in one particular case, uh, we have an employee who is now our chief investment officer, uh, Mike Resti, uh, who came to us as an intern. And uh, he interned, and then he uh, went back to what he was doing. And he was a uh, uh, a working in financial aid at a, a private school, and, and and coaching sports, coaching hockey. And uh, and a year after the internship, uh, came back to us and said, "Would you be interested in hiring uh, me full time?" You know, we liked him. We thought culturally he could be a good fit. We made him the offer, and had him on an advisor track which we were on for the better part of three to four years. And it became clear that, that there were certain aspects of the advisor position that he wasn't fully comfortable with. You know, some of the, some of the uh, a great relationship guy, uh, but, uh, but not, so, not so comfortable with the business development aspects of the job. But what he became very interested in was the investment uh, the investment discipline, the investment side, you know, the, the investment uh, process within our firm, and, and he embraced that. And, uh, you know, as we were going through our transition to full-fledged RIA several years ago, um, you know, it, it, Mike was right there, right place, right time, and he, he, he took on the, the investment process and made it his own and is now our chief investment officer. So it can evolve, but it, it's a longer process, and, and it's mentoring, and it's, it has to be flexible. If you know you have a great talent, you usually find that out fairly quickly, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always result in the, you know, in the original vision that you had when you hired that person. You know, it, it, can, it can take a different, uh, uh, you know, a different path. You know, one of the things, David, that you just mentioned that um, I was just thinking about, um, you mentioned a little while ago as well as just most recently, you hit on something that was really interesting, which is uh, you, you hired athletes and perhaps, um, you know, concert um, sort of uh, violinists or whatever. And what's interesting about those two that we find actually quite um, interesting is that there's two aspects that um, I think of. The first is um, they are team players, both of those, what you just defined. Um, and so they know how to collaborate and work in a team environment. And then the second piece is, is the coachability. 
Because what you just described in Michael is the ability to have hire somebody that is willing to take feedback to become better, continuous improvement sort of, you know, discipline in, in their head, perhaps because of athletics, perhaps because of a musical instrument. Those interests I've had, the willingness to actually listen to somebody um, is actually huge. And, and I think that that has always been there regardless of the generation. But I think that's one of the reasons for why um, we've seen a lot of firms that have done really well with athletics or whatever it is, those other ha- passions or interests, is, is looking for those things. Are they willing to learn and are they continuous learners? Um, because that's a tough thing to necessarily train somebody to be a continuous learner. Um, but there's evidence of that perhaps in some of those, um, some of those areas. Yeah, and and I I think that's a really important point. And there's there's a there's a flip side to that as well. In the fact that you know I'm I'm I've been very fortunate. I I work very closely with David and 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 everybody else at DB Root. And one of the things I definitely see from the outside, and David's kind of touched upon this, but perhaps it's not as obvious if you're if you're in the in the inside, is that. For 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 a, an apprenticeship to be successful, is that there's two sides of that. There's the per, there's the apprentice, and the, and then there's the instructor, the teacher, and and DB Root definitely has more than its fair share of individual senior individuals within the company who are very invested in bringing on the next generation of talent, and and they're and they're good trainers, and 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 they're willing to put in those hours that really they get nothing in return for to actually help uh, tutor and and. and and, and train and mentor uh, the younger people around them. And so I think, David, to your point about culture, that's really driven by, by the culture. And, and I, I, would, I would wholeheartedly say that for people thinking about kind of uh, approaching this, they have to get that buy-in as well from senior people. Yeah, I, that's a great point, Gordon. Uh, and uh, that, that's, that's an important part of the culture. It's purposeful purposeful in the sense that I've tried to pass pass along or pass down to uh, others that uh, have, have mentored, boy, 20, 25 years ago with us that it's important that they uh, take on the, the role of, of mentor and coach and, and you know, help uh, bring along that next generation employee just just as they uh, just as they, they had the same experience either with me or, or someone else in the firm. Um, and you're right. I mean, we've, we've got uh, four different generations in the firm represented, multiple generations. And, and so there are, are, are mentors and coaches at each, at each level that are, you know, sharing their experience and, 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 and trying to help, you know, bring out uh, the, uh, the talents and, and the true strengths uh, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the, uh, the young individuals that we're hiring. And so you're right. Uh, it's that uh, you know having the multiple generations represented and having the uh, the elders, so to speak, you know, take on the role of mentor as well. You know that, and it's a really important point. The next generation of advisor also implies, if you will, the next generation of owners. Um, these are the advisors theoretically that may become the future owners of the firms that they've been developed in and, and have grown in. And Anand, I want to turn to you for a second and ask you um, from the benchmarking and the interactions that you have with RIAs and and firms out there, what are folks like David doing to help um, transition ownership to that next generation? What plans are out there? And then, David, I'll turn it to you and ask you, you know, from your thinking and as those generations come up, how does that um, equity ownership or that ownership mantle get passed? 
Yeah, you know what is interesting is is that when we we've asked consistently for the last several years in our benchmarking study, um, do you have a succession plan and are you know is your succession plan ready for implementation? And consistently that number stayed. Unfortunately, where you know two thirds of firms aren't um, prepared. Um, so that, that's my first evidence. And, and over and over, I come up with firms that are roughly between, um, I'd say, less than a billion dollars. I think many of the billion-dollar-plus firms have figured this out uh, in the REA space. I think under a billion, there's a lot of firms that are between $200 million to a billion that I've seen over and over that don't have a succession plan. The firms that are less than $200 million, I think some of them, I think business continuity, buy sell agreements, so on and so forth. I think they've, they've been fo- we've been focused on that, having that conversation. But there's a structural issue that I that I've been seeing more and more between these firms that I call them almost as tweeners, you know, that um, are between two hundred million dollars and a billion that are from an employee count perspective somewhere between twelve and twenty five employees. And the issue is is that the firms have almost gotten worth too much. And so structurally, it's incredibly challenging for a junior advisor to buy in. So that's been a real structural issue for our industry, and there's been a lot of host of players between private equity and other models that are out there um, that have fueled capital in to help stall for that. But it's, it's not happening nearly as fast as I think our industry needs for it to happen, number one. Number two, there's a psychological aspect of it that we see more and more that these principals having to give up control and the humility that comes with that is really challenging for many business owners. They've started this as their baby, and and and. So with, um, you know, whoever the primary principals are that founded the business, um, you know, he or she has to realize that in order for this firm to live on beyond myself, I have to be able to be willing to give up control. And, and that starts with the, you know, the, the first part of the financial, but then more importantly, actually, um, you know, regardless of the financials, is emotionally and mentally. And that starts with the clients. It starts with business decisions. Um, um, all uh, is much more important than the financial piece. But unfortunately, they focus on the financial, and, and, and then gets in the way of them starting to give up control on some of the other pieces. So, David, how have you been addressing it? I know that uh, it's a really important topic to you, especially as as DB Root grows through an inorganic, you know, acquisition mode as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think Anand made made some great points, and and Ed and Gordon, uh, you both know uh, the the work that we've done together uh, to help uh, to help me focus on becoming a a better CEO. You know, for example, better leader. Uh, my career has been spent in working with clients, uh, thirty five years. Uh, uh, you know, working with clients and and, and uh, building relationships and and growing a firm that way. Uh, awfully fulfilling, and I can share that experience with with a new hire. Uh, but where I've focused my time in the last three years, especially, has been on becoming a better leader and and becoming a better delegator, uh, a um, uh, more focused on uh, on the longer term and and what you know what is you know what is our long term purpose, what's our long term future, and to your point, Ed. About inorganic growth, uh, you know, I, I I'm a strong believer uh, that you know our industry uh, is growing. It, it's highly fragmented, um, and, and there's an opportunity, uh, I think, uh, for RIAs in particular to those that uh, that want to acquire scale 
those that acquire scale can grow uh, rapidly and, and can grow above the market average at a 20% plus growth rate. That's that is that's our objective. That's that's an objective we've accomplished in the last several years, and, you know, and we hope to uh, build on that going forward. The inorganic growth part, I think, uh, means that we are are uh, very open to uh, seeking uh, other. Uh, advisors that are like-minded or that might bring a different discipline, like 401k, for example. And I'll I'll tie this into the next generation and how we're spreading ownership here internally. Uh, I have a uh, a younger a younger man. I was going to call him a very young man, but he, he's we've been together for 20 plus years. Uh, and his name is Dave as well. And um, uh, Dave. Uh, 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 Ten years ago, had an interest in diversifying his practice into, into 401k, and had an opportunity to do that with a couple of, uh, of private uh, business owner clients that he had. So he he slowly built uh, or established a foothold in the in the 401k industry uh, over the last ten years. About five years ago, um, I said to Dave that, uh, uh, and, and Dave, uh, uh, Dave's been with us for 21 years, and um, uh, I mentored him uh, from day one, and uh, uh, he's come uh, along to be a uh, really an exceptional advisor in the firm, and uh, and very much partner partner material. Um, and so I approached him five years ago uh, about the prospect of becoming a shareholder in the firm. It made sense to me. Uh, he had diversified his practice, uh, so he became a partner. Um, and I, uh, I, I sold, or I, I acquired his his book of business, basically for starters, including the 401k clients. Um, and, and then I uh, I gave him an option to purchase more shares, which he elected to do. Uh, so he's become a, uh, I would say, a meaningful minority shareholder in the firm. Um, what's interesting is that that, that 401k uh, part of his practice has grown and actually uh, actually prepared us for some inorganic growth that we've gone through in the last two in the last year. We've we've actually acquired two firms, as as you both well know, uh, one in Toledo and one locally. That both uh, where the majority of their practices is 401k based. So uh, where the majority of the revenues in both practices uh, were coming from their uh, fiduciary uh, consulting uh, uh, part of their practice. Uh, that uh, that they've grown, but they've also, they also have a private wealth management component as well. But we acquired both these firms, and it made sense uh, to them uh, to align with us because we had the 401k practice. So actually taking the step to bring Dave on as an owner, uh, you know, planted the seed, set the stage uh, for the future inorganic growth that, that we're pursuing now. And now we have uh, kind of a dual discipline in wealth management and 401k that, uh, that really was, uh, uh, you know, more like, uh, you know, just a seedling uh, four or five years ago. Mm. And, and so this kind of leads on to another topic I wanted to cover, which is compensation. And 
particularly when we're dealing uh, with younger generations, I think, and again, I, I'm actually kind of, uh, quite sympathetic towards them because of the internet and the wealth of information out there nowadays. It's very easy for somebody to essentially look up and uh, at least perceive whether they're they're well paid or not. You know, how do you guys kind of approach compensation? What advice would you guys give to, to RIAs kind of tackling this? Is it, is it should we be doing something different in the industry? Uh, and Anne, you kind of touched on that a little bit. You know, what, what's your advice to RIAs? is as they think about building their compensation structure for younger people joining the industry. Yeah, why don't I start by saying, you know, I think one of the things that is a, um, a missed opportunity by many firms is communicating total benefits um, and compensation um, so that you're, you're really um, evaluating what is the total picture of what I'm providing to a specific employee. And so, you know, we've, we've more and more seen um, from firms, uh, you know, if you think about some of those other um, potential options for career paths, um, creative benefits um, emerging all over the place. So just a simple example, one of the fastest growing um, areas of benefits is standing desks, as an example. It's one of the fastest um, growing benefits that people view. And so putting a value to things like a standing desk, um, and in addition to the basics of whether it's a 401k match, health care, so on and so forth, and actually communicating to uh, uh, you know an employee, here's your total benefit statement. Here's everything you're getting, um, and you know short-term, long-term compensation, so on and so forth. The other thing that I'll say is, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that I think that um, our industry, because it's, it's historically been tied to a payout model or a production model, um, that's been challenging, and um, it, it's been positive in many respects, but also challenging. And challenging for that new entrant employee. Um, you know, people see the upside. If you're a sales-minded person, you gosh, you see that you know the potential upside being almost infinite. But for many for employees coming out, they, it gets back to that perception issue that we talked about in the earlier part of our of our conversation today. So I think that part of what um, we are encouraging folks to think about is, is really understand first off what is your philosophy and what are your goals you're trying to do as a firm. So if you're trying to create, for instance, a team-based approach, and if you want to think about long-term thinking and driving long-term thinking in employees then perhaps there's things such as, you know, deferred comp, there's things such as the salary and a bonus structure, bonuses tied to long-term performance, um, things like phantom share equity programs enter into the mix. Um, there's a lot of creative tools you can use, but I find that firms don't spend enough time with first figuring out what do they want? What do they want their employees to be focused on from a goals perspective? Where's the firm headed from a vision perspective? And then solving structurally, you know, compensation and then communicating that compensation through something like a total benefit um, compensation statement. So um, don't jump just to the numbers um, because if you jump to the numbers, um, you know, then that's all you're focused on versus a bigger story around why are we doing, why do we have the numbers we have? And I think firms don't spend enough time there. Yeah, I, I think that's very important. I, I think communicating the benefits um, extremely important. And I, I also think for the, the the next generation hire that you know that we make, we make it we try to make it very clear, try to emphasize, impress upon them that the experience that they're going to get, that they're going to gain over the next three to five years, whether they stay with DB, DBR or not. Uh, is is going to be valuable to them, per, perhaps invaluable to them in terms of uh, a stepping stone to whatever their next career step may be or, or next firm may be. Uh, so, uh, you know, part of the part of the compensation is just in the experience they're going to get in the next, you know, in that first three to five 
year period. Now, beyond that, uh, we also communicate uh, even to a new hire, and and, and we've uh, actually followed through and, and demonstrate that with existing uh, existing partners in the firm or employees that have become partners that to have a stake in the future is very much a possibility. It's it's not just we're not just making the statement uh, or or you know creating the fantasy that they uh, you know that they can participate in the growth of the firm. They will participate in the growth of the firm. We followed through in the last year with uh, with four different individuals. Uh, I mentioned Mike Arresti, he being one of them, uh, who are you know kind of that uh, I'll say that 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 second or or third generation uh, employee that uh, is really moving the needle for the firm and they they became partners in the last year. So the the new hires in that that fourth generation that that newest hire uh, is seeing the generation in front of them actually acquiring ownership, actually acquiring a stake in the future. Uh, so so they see that that's part of the compensation, the future compensation, if they're willing to invest themselves. The, maybe the last thing I'll say is that a year ago, we, uh, we actually uh, adopted a flexible PTO policy. You know, we, we call it the Google policy, where we have no, uh, we have no vacation policy. In other words, it's, it's totally up to them. They can, you know, they can take as much or as little time off as they want. And I have to say, it's it's sort of had the intended benefit uh, that we were hoping for, and that is we have found that really across the board, and I think actually the acquisitions that we've made have 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 contributed to this. Uh, we've found that that everyone is actually coming in a little bit earlier. They're staying a little bit later. You know, not that time in the office is is all that. You know, is the be all end all, but we're finding that there's even a higher investment by giving them more flexibility, and I think I think they're appreciative of that. And getting back to the ownership, they they see that as a meaningful part of their long term compensation. And as long as you hire the right people, it's never an issue. It's a, I, we're, we're, I'm a firm believer in the same thing, um, yes. and it has a has a big impact. And and I I really do just want to like highlight and underline what you talked about pathway to equity as well, because I do think that is one of the real key advantages this industry has on its side, and too few firms use it. You know, if you think about the younger generations today. You know, I think what's unique about them is that they their their heroes are often entrepreneurs. You know, the Steve Jobs, the you know the Jeff Bezos of, of this world are, are are heroes to to young people today. I don't know if that was the case 50, 60 years ago. I I, I don't. I, I think I think that's something that is unique. And and in many RIAs are essentially startups. And and the fact if you can put in place a, a pathway to equity, it's a massive plus. And I think it does have a have a massive impact. Um, gentlemen, I just want to close out on this. We, we're we're running out of time here. I want to I want to just close out on one kind of open question for the group in terms of what does this look like in ten years' time? You know, what, where do you think the industry is going in terms of the composition of of people in this industry, um, the people attracted to this industry? Do you think this is something that the industry will be able to address and, and take action on, or or is it or is it something that's going to be a bit of a ticking time bomb? What what are people's thoughts on that? 
I can I can start off by saying, you know, I think that a few things that I think about for the future of the industry. The first is I think we're going to end up with an industry that's going to be more diverse than it is now. I think it's going to be more representative across of um, what America looks like. The increasing diversity of America um, will be reflected um, in the advisors that serve them because, if not anything else, it's going to force it there because of relatability. If you think about um, some of the comments that David made around relatability of being able to um, have gone through and see somebody across the table from you that perhaps has had similar life experiences um, that you have had, um, and whether that was great here or whatever that um, that gives you that impression, um, I think that our industry has to stay with um, the aspect of diversity being driven by our apps because of relatability. Um, life experiences are different based off your socioeconomic as well as where you came from. Um, and, and there's a whole different aspect, a lot of different aspects of diversity I think about um, between social as well as cognitive. That's the first thing. The second thing I think about is um, a higher reliance on this EQ dimension versus the IQ, I think. Um, I think there's going to be more and more tools that are going to automate and digitize and robotize, whatever you want to call it, that is going to make this important. So this bionic advisor more and more relevant. And what that means, I believe, is, is that you know we, we continue to talk about this focus around um, you know, where is value derived in our industry, and right you know historically it's been derived around investment management, and that's how we charge for an industry. But I think it's going to continue to be more focused on higher level questions um, and really getting to know your clients at a much deeper, intimate level that drives. Um, fulfillment in your in, in the client's minds, and I think that's going to require um, from our advisors a much more consultative approach, a much more um, sort of humble in, uh, inquiry type of approach, and that's going to require a different type of skill set than historically our industry is focused on and trained for, and also therefore a different type of advisor as well. Um, so I think that that's going to um, sort of add to the diversity. And the last thing I'll mention is is that. I think, as I think about um, our, our industry, I, I do think that then, therefore, if pricing evolves, if um, if I think 10 to 20 years from now, if um, the, the value is placed on that relationship, perhaps it, it evolves um, as well from a pricing model perspective to be um, that the entire industry is compensated differently. Um, you know, heck, could it be subscription model? There's been questions around um, do we charge based on income or net worth or other things, and some firms are already doing that. And so then, therefore, will there be then different um, differences in how we compensate? Will it move to, you know, classically, even in the Warehouses from a payout structure to more of a salary and bonus, and will that trickle across our entire industry? So I think that there's a lot of questions and uncertainty there, but I do think that um, as as a whole, the you know wealth advisor um, industry and, and really the advisory profession um, will continue to evolve. And I think because of those structural things that we're seeing across the industry and, and the demands of the advisor evolving as well. You know, I I would second. Anand's uh, uh, point about diversity, uh, no question about that. Um, but I, and I would add, especially at the female level, I think uh, it's so important to to uh, to uh, encourage uh, the, the you know females to become advise you know to to be to to uh, to move into an advisor track to the extent that we can uh, encourage that part of the the population. Uh, to, to, to get involved, to become involved, uh, I think we're going to be a, a much uh, better, uh, a, a much uh, better industry for it. Um, I, I would also say, very much on a positive note, that I think we're at an inflection point with respect to the next generation. Um, you, you think about the millennial generation; it's it's the largest generation, you know, so far in history. 
and as a result, the talent pool is just bigger. Um, and, and so I, I think our industry is evolving and maturing, and as, as we do, I, I think we're, we're looking at it more philosophically in terms of, you know, passing, passing what we know, passing on down what we know to the next generation. There's going to be a bigger talent pool. Uh, we have to open ourselves up to bringing on the next generation and then the next generation after that and, 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 and providing a mentoring approach. Uh, and as we mature as an industry, I think we'll, we will we'll definitely get better at that. And the last thing I would say, and I think, Gordon, you, you raised a good point about, you know, today's heroes, you know, the, the Steve Jobs and the Jeff Bezos and the, you know, the entrepreneurs and the the uh, the business owners, uh, uh, the uh, the Phil Knights of Nike, you know who you know who have ch- really you know legitimately changed the world uh, through what they and their company company has done. I think we have to look at it the same way. I think that you know we have an opportunity to change the world in terms of how we. Uh, how we practice our business. Anin made great points about compensation and, and structurally how we're positioning ourselves to serve clients going forward. Uh, I think there's great, you know, there's great examples, uh, uh, you, you know, looking at a, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon or Steve Jobs and, and, and Apple, uh, you know, with respect to how they're serving the client, how they're relentless in terms of making the client experience better for them. And I think uh, to the extent that we can use our imaginations to, uh, to help the, the next generation think about how they can change the world, you know, given the structure we have and how, you know, they can make it better on, on their own, I think uh, just means it, it, it makes for a better long-term result. So I, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future, um, you know, with respect to this next generation. I want to thank our guests for the great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you find it entertaining, informative, and helpful. If you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please feel free to contact us at podcasts at dynastyfp.com. That's podcasts at dynastyfpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. Until then, remember, at Dynasty, we get to live our American dream by empowering others to live theirs.